Well, good morning, all you owners of four-wheel drives. <laughs> Great to have you here. Either that or you were raised in the Midwest. I grew up in the eastern Washington. This is nothing, nothing. So thank you for making it out here. Um, like most of you, I have been obsessed with the Seahawks all year long. And especially this week, I have watched the highlights of that game over and over, the same exact plays over and over and over again. I have listened to sports radio way more than I should have, uh, like when I was supposed to be writing this sermon, right? Because it's just so cool. I have teared up on multiple occasions. I have gotten all choked up and teary. And I thought, what's wrong with me? Like, how can the outcome of one game, you know, that... that it has no real bearing on my life, really, make me so happy? And my answer is, I don't care. It just does. <laughs> I mean, part of it is the collective enthusiasm. Part of it is this team is just so darn fun to watch. But I think there's also a deeper story underneath it. Right? We all love an underdog story, and there's some underdog stories in the Seahawks' victory in there. I think Nike summed it up great. An undersized quarterback shouldn't play so big. The defense shouldn't be the star of the show. Head coaches shouldn't coach like they're still in college. A team with no rings from the Northwest shouldn't win. What shouldn't they do next? <laughs> we all love that story, right? Everyone loves that. Unless you're from Denver, everyone loves that story. And then there's Russell Wilson. Is he a stand-up guy or what? Like, you know, he wins, and the first thing he does, he thanks God, and then he thanks his teammates, and then he thanks the fans, and he never points to himself. Right? But a lot of people did not think that he was the right guy. In fact, the day the Seahawks selected him, one sports writer wrote this, Pete Carroll is proving why he didn't make it in the NFL the first time. As if the day wasn't bad enough, Seahawks the Seattle selecting Russell Wilson, a quarterback that doesn't fit their offense, was by far the worst move of the draft. Seattle is the only team that received an F on draft day. It just feels so good to read that, doesn't it? In fact, should I read it again just for the pleasure of it? Right, like that's just, I just, I saw that quote a month ago, and I was, I saved it for today, right? Like, I don't care what I'm preaching on, I was going to use that quote today, right? Too inexperienced, too short, he's 5'11", I'm 5'11", and that is the beginning of a list of one thing that he and I have in common. <laughs> but Pete Carroll and John Schneider saw something in him and brought it out. His father, as you know, would always say to him, Russell, why not you? Why not you? And don't we all want that? Someone who sees beyond the outside stats, beyond your salary, your education, your looks, all that outside stuff, sees all the way down to you and pulls out of you the you that you know that you can be. Truth is we all need a mirror that rightly reflects back to us who we really are. Without proper mirrors, we can't know ourselves correctly. It's like trying to comb your hair without a mirror. Which for me, this is really just a theoretical illustration. But for those of you who actually have hair, if you try to comb it without a mirror, you just kind of have to hope for the best, right? Because it can come out all messed up. Without accurate mirrors, we don't always know who we are. And that messes up our self-esteem. It messes up our relationships. Because we either start to look down on other people, thinking we're superior, or we compare ourselves to someone. Why aren't I like so-and-so? Why don't I wish I had their job? I wish I had their looks, their brains, whatever. But here's the thing. When you get to heaven, Jesus is not going to ask you why you weren't more like so-and-so. He's going to ask you why you weren't more like you. The you that he created you to be. 
And to become that, there are, there are two mirrors we need to reflect back to us accurately who we really are. Jesus and each other. Now, Jesus is the only perfect mirror, right? We, each other, we can be like circus mirrors and distort who we really are to one another. And some of you have been hurt by that. Some of you have been hurt by others who have given you lousy labels and said you're too dumb or you're not smart or you're, not, you're too smart or you're this or you're that or you're not this enough or that enough. They've given you labels. So we have to be careful when it comes to how we view each other and how we use each other to understand ourselves. But when with Jesus and when we begin to see each other through Jesus' eyes, then one of the benefits of community is that we become more accurate mirrors for one another. Last week, Jesse Rice talked on the story of Zacchaeus. I want to look at the same story again today from a slightly different angle because it shows how Jesus is a mirror that helps us know who we really are and shows us the kind of mirrors we need other people to be and how we can be that for others as well. And it's a familiar story, right? Like if you grew up going to Sunday school, you know the Sunday school song. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. Wee little man was he. Right? In a culture that, where shortness was despised. So already he's been given labels. You don't matter because you're short. And he was rich. Maybe got rich to try to prove to other people that he did matter. And the way he did that was by being a tax collector for the occupying Roman army. And they would make the tax collectors would make their money by, at the expense of their fellow Jews by charging extra fees that they then kept for themselves. And it's interesting, the people in the story never refer to him by his name. Instead, they use labels. Tax collector, sinner. He's not given a name, he's dropped in a category. Right? And we live in a world that does that to us, don't we? We're not somebodies, we're some things. We're doctors or lawyers or good, bad, lazy, whatever it is. And those labels, good, bad, dumb, smart, they start to define us. We start to believe that that's who we really are. And in this whole story, Jesus is the only one that calls Zacchaeus by name. And we don't even know how Jesus knew his name. Well, the, you know, the easy answer is, well, he's Jesus, right? He knows everything. You know, yes, he's God, but you know what? He was also fully human, and while on earth, he laid aside his omniscience. So I have a better answer to the question. Maybe Jesus asked someone what Zacchaeus' name was. Hey, what's that shot off shyster's little name? Probably didn't call him that, but what's that little guy's name, right? What's his name? And right there, he says to Zacchaeus, you're not a tax collector. You're not a sinner. Those are things you do. Who you are is someone whose name is worth knowing. See, this story begins with Zacchaeus climbing a tree to look for Jesus, only to discover that all along, Jesus has been looking for him. And then Jesus says, I'm coming to your house, which implies that they're going to eat together, which in that culture was the highest form of friendship and acceptance. And then it says Zacchaeus stood up, which is an interesting metaphor. Like the real Zacchaeus. Not the Zacchaeus that had been beaten down, but the real Zacchaeus inside him stood up and said, I give half my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody, I'll not just pay it back, but I'll pay back four times the amount. And then Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham, which is an interesting phrase. Because by being a tax collector, he has enriched himself at the expense of his fellow Jews. He would be considered a traitor to the nation. But Jesus says, no, like all Jews, he is a son of Abraham and he belongs to this community. And the verb tense here matters. Because at the beginning it says that Zacchaeus was rich and was a tax collector, past tense. But now he is, present tense, a son of Abraham. 
That is, he's no longer known by his labels. He's known by his real identity as a child of God and member of the community. Labels are gone. And I think this is both comforting to us, but also challenging. Because truth is, we sometimes like to be known by the labels, don't we? Especially if they're good, successful, good-looking, whatever, right? We like those labels. But Jesus is the one who shows us who we are beyond the labels. So if your identity is in being rich with Jesus, you might not be that much longer. If you identify yourself as popular with Jesus, you might not be that for very long which is challenging to us because we, lo- we love some of those labels. But it's also good because those labels can make us insecure because if we stop being successful or rich or good-looking, well, then what? See, those labels are hollow. Plus, if you identi- identify yourself as no good or a waste of space, depressed, afraid, well, with Jesus, you might not be that for very long either. See, with Jesus, we have to lose all that we think we are, so that we become everything he is and everything that he created us to be. See, Zacchaeus didn't think he mattered, and because of that, he didn't think anyone else mattered either, so he cheated him. But with Jesus, suddenly he's generous. Suddenly he's a man of justice. Huge transformation. Or is it? Is it a change? Or was this there all along? Was this in him when he was a kid, but it got beat out of him by all those labels that he was given? Jesus is the mirror that helps us know who we really are, which is why it is so important to connect to him in prayer and worship and scripture and listening for his voice, not audible words, but those thoughts that are not our thoughts. And we're going to give you a great opportunity to connect with Jesus more here in the last weekend in March, conference called Immerse. And it's going to be led by our staff and volunteers from this church along with me. And there'll be sessions for kids and families and individuals. Just put that on your calendar now because when we connect with Jesus, it helps us know who we really are. Woman in our church who I'll call Tina was at a prayer conference in another state And a woman was praying for her, and a verse popped into this woman's head that she shared with Tina. And the verse had something to do with pomegranates. And Tina thought, that's weird. So she looked it up and saw that pomegranates were used to decorate the temple in the Old Testament. But she still couldn't figure out the meaning of pomegranates. So she's like, okay, thanks for the verse, freaky prophecy woman, but I don't know what to do with it, right? So then she forgot all about it. Two years later, Tina suddenly started getting a lot of reminders of this verse, all within a couple of weeks of each other. Someone gave her pomegranate soap. Two two people gave her pomegranate lotion. One person gave her pomegranate room spray. Like, I didn't even know there was such a thing. A veritable plague of pomegranates descended on her house. And so she's like, God, what's with all, why am I swamped with pomegranates? And, And at the time, she was struggling with her weight, trying to lose weight, trying to diet, but having all kinds of feelings of guilt and shame and I'm not thin enough and all of that, right? And then she got one of those thoughts that was not her thought. Pomegranates decorated the temple. The New Testament says that I am the temple of the Holy Spirit and I am meant to be an adornment for the Spirit and adorned by the Spirit, which means I need to take care of my body, not so that I fit our culture's standards of beauty, but because you know, my worth isn't in what I weigh. I need to take care of my body because I am the temple of the Holy Spirit. He lives in me. I am worthy of proper care because I am an adornment for God. Totally shifted her sense of self and helped her be a little less tied to, a little more free from all the negative messages of our culture. Jesus is the mirror that helps us know who we really are. 
But not just that. Not just that. He also helps us be accurate mirrors for one another. Which, as I said, we have to be careful about because we can be imperfect mirrors. But with Jesus' help, one of the best things about really good friends and spouses and community is they can help us know who we really are. Like Russell Wilson's dad did for him. This is what's in you. And when we know ourselves correctly, lots of things become possible. A 5'11 quarterback can lead his team to a Super Bowl victory. So, then how do we, with Jesus' help, become those mirrors for one another that help us discover what's in us, who we really are? Two things. The first is play hide-and-seek. And here's what I mean by that. When my kids were little, I used to play hide-and-seek with them. And the joy, the fun of that game for them was in being found at the moment that they wanted to be found. Like if I found them too quickly, then that wasn't fun, right? But if, I, if the game went on too long, well, that wasn't fun either. I had to find them at the moment that they were ready to be found. It's the same in relationships. We all want to be known, but not all at once. And nobody wants to be exposed, so with our friends and our coworkers, our family, we need to play hide-and-seek, gradually go deeper and deeper in our relationship. And there's three ways to do that. Notice, ask, and pray. Jesus noticed Zacchaeus. You know, I might not have seen him up in that tree. I might have been looking for someone important in the town, you know, like the mayor or someone like that. Just notice. And I'm, I'm terrible at this. You know, one of my weaknesses is I have terrible facial recognition abilities. Like, I think I have an issue. So, so, for instance, we'll be watching a movie, and I'll ask my wife, I'll say, who's that actor? He looks familiar. And she'll say, Tom Cruise. I'm like, oh, I should have known that, right? A few weeks ago, we were watching a movie, and she said, do you know who that actor is? And I didn't. And she told me, super famous actor. So she started singing the Disney song to me, A Whole New World Every Day. Right? And it's true. I meet new people every day. It's just that I know them already. So I have to really work on this noticing thing. Maybe you do too, but just notice. And then ask people questions. Go deeper and deeper and deeper. Who's been important in your life and why? What motivates you? What demotivates you? And then pray about those closest to you. Ask God to show you things in them that maybe others haven't seen. One of the most life-changing experiences for me was when the pastor I worked for in California said to me one day, Scott, you are a leader. And I said, no, I'm not, because there had been a lot of people in my life who had explicitly said I was not a leader, told me explicitly, you can't lead, you don't know how to lead, don't try, you're too shy, you're too insecure, blah, 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 blah. But my, this pastor said, well, look behind you, is anyone following you? And at the time, I was a college pastor, and people were following me, and he said, that's a leader, you're just a different kind of leader. Actually, I think the phrase he used was, you're a weird leader, but it was still life-changing for me. See, he'd paid enough attention. He'd noticed something in me that others hadn't noticed. And he said it at the right time. If he had said it too soon, I wouldn't have believed him. But there was enough experience there that I could, I could listen to it. I could hear it. Notice, ask, pray. Maybe go out to coffee with someone after church to get to know them better. Many of you do this. Maybe have folks over for dinner or dessert to your house. And here's the rule. If you have other church folk over to your house for dinner or dessert, here's the rule. You are not allowed to spend more than 30 minutes cleaning your house beforehand. Okay, new rule here at Bell Press. You can't come to this church unless you obey by that rule, okay? And here's the reason, okay? There's a good reason because sometimes I think we don't have folks over and build community because we think everything has to be perfect. No, it doesn't. It's better if your house is messy. It helps everyone relax. I get to, get to know people, and in the weeks to come, we're going to give you some opportunities to experience community, and we're hoping you take us up on those opportunities so that we can get to know each other better. Play hide-and-seek. Get to know people gradually. Notice, ask, pray. 
And then second, second way we can be good mirrors for one another is turn flattery and complaint into affirmation and critique. Most of what we get in relationships is flattery and complaint, both of which are cheap versions of real love, which gives affirmation and critique. See, flattery is based on what you do for someone or what they do for you when you flatter them. You, they, you, know, you enhance their social prestige by being with them or make them feel good or whatever. It's based on what you do. That's, that's, what, that's what flattery is. It's not so much about your character or even your gifts and your skills. It's just what you do. Now, compliments are good. We all need compliments, and it's good to give each other compliments. But we should avoid flattery, and we definitely should not listen to it too much when we hear it. Praise is like perfume. It's great to take a whiff, but you don't want to swallow it, right? And if a compliment, and here's a general kind of principle, if a compliment makes you feel pressured to keep on doing something at a certain standard, it may be flattery. And it's damaging. Flattery damages us in lots of ways. For starters, we can start to believe our own PR and kind of lose our identity. I recently read a story about Billy Graham who was going to a speaking engagement a few years ago and there was a limo to pick him up at the airport and he said, I'm 87, I've never driven a limousine, do you mind if I drive it? So the limo driver moved over and let Billy Graham drive. Well, a little bit down the road, he was pulled over for speeding. Oh, doesn't that make you feel better? That made me feel, Billy Graham speeds, that just made me feel so much better. Right? But the state trooper recognized him and then got kind of flustered, so he called the supervisor and said, I know that sometimes we give kind of special courtesies to important people, so I need to know what to do because I've pulled over someone who's important. And the supervisor said, well, is it the governor? Is it a senator? Who is it? Trooper said, I'm not sure. For all I know, it might be Jesus because he's got Billy Graham as a chauffeur. <laughs> See, if we listen too much... I liked that one. I thought it was a good story. If we listen too much to the flattery, we can start to lose our identity and believe our own PR. But the real problem with flattery is because it's about what you do, not who you are, guess what happens when you stop doing that thing? Well, then you get complaint. And in both flattery and complaint, the other person isn't seeing you for who you really are, and vice versa, which is why real love gives affirmation and critique. Affirmation is about your character. It's about your gifts, not how you exercise them. It says things like you love well or you're loyal or you're a leader or you have compassion. And here's some examples that I've seen in you. And because it's about pulling out of you the you that you can be, real love doesn't just give affirmation. It also gives critique, which is different than complaint. Critique aims to call you up and call you out to be the you that God created you to be which means we've got to be willing to listen to it and hear it. Because sometimes, truth be told, when we ask for advice, what we're really asking for is accomplices, isn't it? But we need people who love us enough to tell us not just what we want to hear, but what we need to hear. And good friends, man, this is where good friends can be so helpful in this. Spouses can be super helpful in this. Man, I cannot fool my wife on anything. She reads me like a cheap novel. I told you before about one time... When I, my first year as a college pastor in California, I hated it. Just hated it. The students were fighting. Group wasn't growing. I felt like a total failure. So one day, I said to my wife, I said, I'm going to quit. I, this isn't working out. And you know what she did? She yelled at me. She actually yelled at me. And she said, you will do no such thing. This job is forcing you to have more of a backbone. It's forcing you to be a leader. It's forcing you to grow. And then she went on, and there were some other comments, interesting comments about my work ethic and attitude and such. And those were very fascinating. And then she said, this is making you the man that I need and that I know deep down you really are. 
affirmation and critique. A local businessman who owns some property here on the east side recently told me that one day he was at a coffee shop that was in a building that he owns, and there was a barista there in her early 20s, looked like she was having a bad day. He noticed. He noticed her. So he asked, are you okay? And she said, actually, I'm caught between Bellevue and Seattle. And went on to explain that she lives in Seattle and there'd been a shooting the night before and she knew both the victim and the shooter. And she said, but here, you know, I am, I'm working in Bellevue where everybody is rich and her perception was everyone's rich and no one would care about her problems. That's not true, that's just a perception, but for her, that was, that was her reality. So this businessman set up a time that they could meet for coffee and talk. They got together, they talked for over two hours. Most of it, this businessman just listened to her talk. And he asked her a lot of questions about her life, about her hopes, her dreams, all kinds of stuff. She told them that on her block there was drug addiction, domestic violence, all kinds of difficult things. Well, after she was done with her whole story, he simply said, you know what, that sounds like there's a lot of painful things in your life. And yet there's something in you that compels you to want a better life. And it's that something inside you that gets you up early every morning and gets you on that bus to ride over here to Bellevue. And that something has you here talking to me. And that something inside you is the reason that you are not going to repeat all of those dysfunctions around you. That something in you is what's going to make your life different than what you've seen. That might have been the first time anyone gave her that kind of affirmation ever. Here he is, the owner of the building that she works in. And at first, all she sees is some rich guy who doesn't care. And yet he took time. He noticed. He asked questions. And then he met with her after that. He met with her three or four more times after that to encourage her, to give her gentle critique, to help her grow, grow. But mostly he just gave her affirmation about who she was and about her character. And that's something that was deep inside her. He was a mirror that helped her see herself, not for all the labels that had been put on her, but for who she was, her original design. And she was able to see past his labels as well and be a mirror for him. So how can you get closer to Jesus so that you can know who you really are, so that he can reflect back to you your original design? Decide today you're going to go to that Immerse conference to connect with him more. And how can you help those around you, those that God has put in your life, how can, how can you help them know you better and love you more so that they can give you the affirmation and the critique that you need? And how can you be that kind of mirror for other people so that we all can kind of move past our labels and discover who we really are and what's deep inside of us and just how valuable we are to each other, but especially how valuable we are to God. Right after Jesus encounters Zacchaeus, he marches into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. One week later, he's crucified. I think that's interesting. The story begins with Zacchaeus climbing a sycamore tree because he thinks he doesn't matter. And one week later, Jesus will climb onto a different kind of tree to prove to him that he really does. In the Bible, God says, Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. That's how much you matter to God. That's how much I matter to God. And what would it be like if you looked at yourself through God's eyes? What would it be like if you looked at others that way too? And how would our lives change if we could be those mirrors for one another to show us who we really are by reminding us of whose we really are? So Jesus, thank you that you help us know our original design. Thank you that you do that. Thank you that you put others in our lives to help us do that. Lord, we ask that you would help us be those good mirrors to the people in our lives and help us look into your face to know who we really are so that we can be the people 
you designed us to be. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.